you're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Reading this morning comes from page 259 in your Baptist hymnal. I will read and the church will respond with the bold print. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished to all good works. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is at rest, and all the glory of man is at our rest. The grass But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commander of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. To my path, the entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and to the joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in my sight. Our children are dismissed to jam. Just head out the back, follow the adults. Some of us will miss you, others won't. Y'all know it's true, come on. I call your attention this morning to Joshua and chapter 11. Today we'll be considering verses 18 through 23 of Joshua and chapter 11. Now for those of you that are inclined to notice the verses from week to week that we look at, you're wondering why we've jumped so far ahead from where we were last week. Well, it's not that we are trying to move quickly or too quickly or anything like that or that there was a particular topic that I just personally don't want to preach on or cover, but the verses preceding the verses we will consider today do have great detail about the nation-to-nation uh, nation conquests that are happening. So the summary goes like this in the verses from we were at last week until now. Here's the summary. So after the killing of the five kings and putting them back in the tomb... Joshua and Israel will set out to capture and secure victories over all the southern cities, which include uh, Lachish, uh, Maccaday, Eglon, Deborah, Hebron, and so forth. Then they moved to the northern cities, uh, where the kings of Hazar, Ashoff, and the Canaanites to the east, and the Canaanites to the west, and all the metropolises in the surrounding area decided once again to do what 
the nations would do when Israel's making its way through the land and winning victory after victory, they all decided to team up because the enemies of God never really learned their lessons. So this new coalition will face Israel, the nation that belongs to God. And so what happens? Well, Israel conquers them all and takes the land that God had promised them. So once again, we have in those verses, Israel, outmanned, outgunned, is faced with what might be described by many as a potential shellacking coming their way. But the Lord is famous for setting up these overwhelming challenges before His people, only to show them that His power and His glory is never outmanned and never outgunned, because God gives the victory. And we all love this kind of story, if we're honest, right? We write new stories from generation to generation about the unmatched athlete, the overpowered and outnumbered army, the warrior who has to outwit, and so on. We love the underdog story. Uh, my favorite movie of all time is Rudy. And I know what you're thinking. A Baptist pastor's favorite movie of all time is a movie about a Catholic school. I mean, they start jokes off that way, right? A Baptist minister and a Catholic priest go to a football game, you know. But it is. It's my favorite movie because I absolutely love that underdog story. And there is that moment when Charles Dutton is standing there in the ramp heading into Notre Dame Stadium. And he's looking at Rudy, who has just quit out of discouragement and bitterness. And he looks at him to encourage him in this way. He says, look at you. You're five foot nothing, a hundred in nothing. You have barely a speck of athletic talent. And you hung in there with the best college football team in the nation for two years. So he gives him this motivational speech. You're the underdog. You don't amount to anything. You're, you're too small. You're not an athlete. You don't have what it takes. And yet somehow you hung in there with this football team, the greatest in the land, for two years. And the next scene is Rudy heading on to the practice field. Right? I got to go watch that movie this afternoon now. And the team starts clapping because it's Rudy. Everybody knows he's the underdog. But we love that. We love the undersized guy who goes and plays with the Giants. Now, there's some who will say that the story wasn't really told that accurately in the movie, but I say it was because it's my favorite movie and I can say that. But listen, the Lord puts those stories into our hearts long before motion pictures came along, long before dramatic literature came along, except when God writes the story, it's not a fable. It isn't made for football fans. It tells the story of a God who cannot be defeated by even as many soldiers as there are grains of sand on the earth, as the Bible tells us. And that's where we arrive today. The continued story of God's victory with a rebellious people, as many as numbered as the grains of sand on the earth that come against God's people. They're outnumbered, they're outmatched, they don't have what it takes, and yet it's not about them, it's about God. 
So the summary of the conquests leads us to this point in the scriptures that we have today in Joshua 11, verses 18 to 23. And so I invite you to stand as we honor the Lord at the reading of his word, and we'll see what he has for us in the text today. So Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. No city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Deber, Anab, and the hill country of Judah and all of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land with, of the Israelites, except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do pray that today we would fall deeper in love with your word as you shape us by your word. Call us to repentance. Call us to a spirit of joy. It's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, as you know, the duty of expositional preaching is to preach theologically, meaning as the text naturally moves along and we see how the Lord reveals himself in the text, there's either a or a number of theological distinctives in the text. Now, a theological distinctive in a basic sense is the study of the nature of God in his word, the Bible, to determine a particular belief. I'll say that again. The theological distinctive that we try to extract from God's word as we study it is the study of the nature of God found in his word, the Bible, to determine a particular belief. And today, in these verses, we have three theological distinctives in the text. Let me give you those three, and then we'll go back and visit them. First, the first theological distinctive is this, God's dealing with man's sin. God's dealing with man's sin. Second, God's sovereignty in the hardening of hearts. God's sovereignty in the hardening of hearts. And third, God's mercy in the plea for peace. God's mercy in the plea for peace. Let's look at the first one. God's dealing with man's sin. Now, as we have unpacked for several weeks, uh, the stark reality of a nation fighting for God versus nations fighting without God, there can be no comparison. So verse 18 says, Joshua waged war with all the kings for a long time. We don't know exactly how long a long time is, but this didn't happen in a matter of days. It took some time for God's army to go through, take out the south, take out the north, take out the Canaanites in the east and the west, even as they joined forces against them. In every instance, 
the Bible says that as they approached these cities, they came out to engage Israel in battle. So that text, Joshua waged war with all the kings for a long time. And now as we read Joshua, we can be so tempted to say, look at what God can do. Look how he destroys his enemies, of which I am not one. And folks, if we are not careful, we can make a terrible assumption about what we read. In fact, a deadly assumption about God. Because you see, the text and that verse is about sin. It's about sin. Sin is revealed to us in Joshua. Both the sin of Canaan and the sin of Israel. Romans 5.10, Paul writes to the church spread out throughout the Roman Empire. And he says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son... Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This narrative is not a narrative of good guys versus bad guys. It may seem that way. It may seem like when you read these stories, you go, yeah, the bad guys got it. And if I was here, if I was in this time, if this was 4,000 years ago, I'd be one of the good guys. I wouldn't be one of the bad guys. And we, there's a temptation to read God's word that way, that it's about bad guys versus good guys. But I have a reality for you. We're all bad guys. <laughs> this text is about sin. As Chad Bird says, it's as if God is saying, guess what, Israel? They are sinners. You are sinners. But you have the promises marching to battle with you. That is the thing that separates you. You're all bad, but you, I've called you to march into battle with my promises because it's about my glory, not necessarily your behavior because you're bad. Now, we know this is true because we've already seen what happens earlier, a few chapters earlier, when Israel, after a victory, disobeys and sins. People died. People from Israel died. People that belong to the Lord's army died because of sin. They're all bad. They're all bad guys. Paul also writes in the book of Romans, he says, It's while we were still sinning that Christ died for us. That's what the Bible says. Listen, apart from the grace of God found in the life and death and the work and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are all doomed to die with a mighty shellacking from heaven. The Bible doesn't teach us, and the Bible doesn't say that God in his, from his dwelling place says, well, look, they're all kind of finally doing pretty good. I think it's time to save their souls. No, he says, uh-uh, look how you, sinful you are. Look how evil you are. Look, you are my enemy, and yet I will send my son to die for you. We're all bad guys. But in sin, as enemies, God has made a way through his son. So the first theological truth that we see here, the book of Joshua is very clear. These nations are bad, Israel is bad, but the difference between Israel and the inhabitants of Canaan is the promises of God. Make no mistake, church, Joshua is a book about sin. Their sin, his sin, her sin, 
my sin, and God deals with sin harshly. Secondly, God's sovereignty in the hardening of hearts. God's sovereignty in the hardening of hearts. This debate of sovereignty has been literally debated for the ages of what it means that God would harden hearts. But in verse 20, we read this. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua is fulfilling the command that God gave to Moses to go into the land and without mercy annihilate them. Now I found it very interesting in this study to see the Hebrew verb used in verse 20. The verb to harden the heart is hazak. Hazak means that God made strong their hearts. He formed their hearts to be hard, to be made strong against him. It's the same verb used in the command God gives to Joshua to be strong, hazak, to be strong and courageous. The verb literally means that God is the one who is making the heart in such a way. He is making strong the heart. He is hardening the heart towards something. But here's the difference. With Joshua, he makes strong his heart that he might have the courage to lead the people to conquer the land. So God makes his heart strong, that verb to be made strong. He makes Joshua's heart strong that they might go in and have the courage to fight for God and have the victory. But for the enemies of God, for the inhabitants of Canaan, he makes strong their hearts that they might fight against Israel and lose the land. As with the Pharaoh in Egypt, as the Bible says, the Lord made Pharaoh's heart hard. Same verb, hazach. It's the same purpose. Pharaoh's heart is made strong against the will of God so that God's glory would be demonstrated, his sovereignty be made famous from generation to to generation. In fact, if you if you if you go back to Joshua chapter one and chapter two, what was it we read about the inhabitants that knew Israel had crossed the Jordan and were coming their way? They had heard the testimony about what God had done in Egypt, that He had hardened Pharaoh's heart, He had sent the plagues, and God had rescued His people from slavery. So they knew this. They knew what God was up to. So many understand that God does what he does in the heart for his own purposes. He purposed Joshua's heart to have courage to conquer the land. And he purposed the inhabitants' heart in the land to fight against Israel only to fail. God purposed both situations. And some may read these stories and go, what an awful thing. That God would harden somebody's heart. They would have no will of their own. 
but to do what God has done and harden their hearts only that they may be annihilated. They go, that's awful. And you know what? It is awful. It's an awful thing that God would harden a heart that would birth destruction in the life. So it comes down to the issue of what is God's sovereignty? What does that word mean? What is the theology? What are we supposed to understand about when God does things like this? God's sovereignty is defined in this way, that God has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do as he wishes with his creation. That's what sovereignty means. God has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to do whatever he wishes with his creation. And whatever God has planned, whatever God wills, whatever God does in his power, in his wisdom, and in his authority is for his glory. By the way, just as an important note here, the inhabitants of Canaan, they had been sinning for a really long time. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, the Lord told Abraham that the sins of the Amorites living in Canaan had, yot, had not yet been fulfilled. All the way back 700 years ago, God tells Abraham, the sinners in Canaan will be overrun. I will have my vengeance on them. I will pour out my justice on them. He gives them 700 years of sinning before Joshua comes into the land to conquer it. It's not like God woke up grumpy one day and said, Joshua, go kill these people. 700 years of rebellion against a holy God. Don't ever think that God doesn't have patience. The question is, how long will the Lord tarry with your sin? It's His will. It's His planning. It's His purposes for His glory. But how long will He tarry with your sin? I don't think there is a chapter in Scripture that help us, helps us understand this theological term of sovereignty more than Ephesians in chapter 1. I want to encourage you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read this with you, and I want to emphasize all of the parts of Ephesians chapter 1. We'll just look at the first 14 verses that deal with God's sovereignty, with God's will, God's planning, God's purpose. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Your, your translation may read by God's purpose. To the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus for himself according to the good pleasure of his 
will to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, that he richly poured out on us with all, look at there, wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have all received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purposes of his will. So that we who had already been who already put on hope in Christ might, might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Do you see God's sovereignty as Paul explains it to the church? Paul wanted desperately for the church to understand how God has purposed things to happen, how God has planned things to happen. And why has God purposed and why has God planned? He has purposed and he has planned for his glory and for the redemption of our souls. That's why he purposes, that's why he plans. Paul really helps us understand this doctrine of sovereignty and uh, put it into perspective. Now, I don't want to get into a discourse about the difference from the Greek words of prognosi and proorizo. Prognosi being prognosis, that is the foreknowledge of God. That word is used in the scriptures. Prognosis, it's where doctors get the word from. When you go into the doctor's office, they're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions. They're going to poke you. They're going to prod you. They're going to ask you doing this. You're going to ask you doing that. They're going to, they're going to diagnose. They're going to try to figure out what's going on in your life. Because a doctor, if he asks enough questions, is going to be able to tell you what's going on. Now, I've got this thing in my shoulder right now. It hurts. Like pops, hurts, stretches, pokes, does all that stuff. I roll it on the wrong way. I don't need a doctor. I know what's going on, okay? I know what's going on. I've decided I have bursitis. I don't know if I have bursitis or not. That's what I've decided, okay? My wife tells me the way that you handle bursitis is to take ibuprofen, get rid of the inflammation, and then eventually you're going to get better. And I'm like, I don't think that works. I'm just going to ro rotate it out. I'm just going to work it out. I'm not good at prognosis, but the Lord is. The Lord is good at that. He does know things before they happen. He does understand things before they happen. He can diagnose a situation because he knows what's going on. Proorizo, the other term that's used more than prognosis, prognosi, that means he has preordained. He has decided beforehand. Before the foundations, he decided certain things were going to happen. The Lord plans and purposes. When he hardens their hearts, just like he hardened Pharaoh's heart, he did so knowing full well what it was going to mean, knowing full well what was going to happen after he hardens their hearts, but he had planned to harden their hearts. The Bible says he planned to harden their hearts that they might fight against Israel so that 
he would have the victory. His glory would be put on display. This is very hard for us to get our minds around, that God might mean for certain things to happen in creation. Because that means that God intends for certain things to happen in creation that we might not like. God intends for certain things to happen in your life that you might not like. But He does it for your good and for His glory. In every case, it's for His glory and your good. Because God does not make mistakes. And God knows His plans from age to age. Listen, God's sovereignty is arguably the most important doctrine to understand. Because to fully understand God's sovereignty means that we accept the reality that God is in control of all things. All things. And you know why that's such a beautiful theology? Why it's such a beautiful doctrine? God in his power and wisdom and in authority is in control of all things. Because you know what happens when we're in control of things? Oh, we mess it up. You really want to be left to be in control of your life? Just do it and watch what happens. I had this really cool thing that happened this week that gave me a sermon illustration. I'm in the donut shop. I'm not going to tell you how many times a week you go to the donut shop because it's none of your business. But one of those times this week, I was in the donut shop, and there was a long line. I finally got my donuts, and uh, as I paid, I turned around, and I saw Leighton Geist and Tara Geist. And Leighton was just about to walk up to the glass case where you get to pick out your donuts. And so I walked back, and I, I leaned down. And I said, hey, Leighton, I said, uh, and y'all, you know what that's like when you're a kid and you go to the donut shop and you're waiting in line. You can see the glass case, and you just can't wait to get up to the glass case to see what donuts you're going to pick. And you really hope that the donuts you like are still there, right? Whatever that donut is, you just want that donut to be there. So I leaned down to Leighton, and I said, hey, Leighton, which donut are you going to pick out? And he looks at the tray with all the different colored sprinkled ones. And he goes, I'm going to get that one and that one and that one and that one. And that one, and I look up at his mom, and she's going, no. No. Now, Layton, it, Layton's going to get a little bit older, and he's going to understand that you don't go to the donut shop with Mama Guys. Because if you go with Mama Guys, she knows what's good for you, and she knows that seven sprinkled donuts is not what Layton needs. But Layton's going to figure out one day that you don't go to the donut shop with Mama Guys, you go with Grandpa Guys. Because if you go with Grandpa Guys, he's going to go, okay, you want that one and that one? Got it. Because there's this thing about grandparents. Grandparents don't just want to be loving and fun and generous. No, the whole mission of grandparents is to undermine parents. That is their mission. They call it getting back at you, but I think they're just, grandparents are wicked. That's what I think. Please don't let that be the only thing you leave this morning pastor said grandparents are wicked you should come to our church but we all know it doesn't matter how old you are it doesn't matter how long you've been going to church it doesn't matter how many bibles you own when you decide to be in control of your own world of your own destination of your own work 
Like when you decide that you're going to be the one who decides things, you're, nothing, you're no different than a four-year-old at a donut shop going, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And fortunately, we have a God who looks over us, and he goes, that's not what's good for you. I'll show you what's good for you. You may not like it, but I'm doing it for your good and for my glory. That's sovereignty, and we should thank the Lord that he intervenes in his creation by his power, by his wisdom, and by his authority. This is a good theology, and we must surrender to that. Lastly, God's mercy in the plea for peace. My favorite verse that we read is verse 19. My favorite verse from Joshua chapter 11 is verse 19. It says, No city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle. You remember the story, right? We looked at it about a month ago. The Gibeonites, the one group of people who knew what the Lord had planned, the one group of people who knew what the Lord had purposed, the one group of people who said, We have no hope, we're doomed, we are in trouble. Make a plea before God's people. Have your God save us, please. Become our refuge. And Israel made an oath with them. And God had given Israel the right to make an oath to people. And their plea for a peace treaty is what saved the Gibeonites. And they're mentioned here again in verse 19. Nobody was spared except for the one group of people who got on their knees and pleaded, pleaded for peace. That means they asked for mercy. They pleaded for mercy. Oh, I love the story of the man by the side of the road in the New Testament in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. He hears some commotion in the streets, and he asks them, he's blind, and he asks some people, What's all this commotion about? And they say, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's here. And what does the blind man do? He calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they say, hey, be quiet. He's doing stuff. And he doesn't care. He says, Son of David, even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns around and says, who said that? See, that has happened. That is purposed by God that he might be forgiven. A cry for mercy. But people don't cry out for mercy. They don't cry out for a peace treaty. But folks, verse 19 is the good news of God. It's the good news of God. God's mercy in our plea for peace. God's mercy in our plea for salvation. God's mercy in our plea for forgiveness. God's mercy in our plea when we recognize we are sinners, we are doomed, we have no hope. So we cry out to God, save us and the Bible teaches over and over and over again every story is thick with God's good news 
Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. David, after he had committed a massive transgression before his whole entire kingdom, he cries out to God in Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquities, and cleanse me of my sin. What a hope. What a hope. Joshua is dealing with sin. Joshua teaches us about the sovereignty of God. He has purposed all things for his glory and our good. And Joshua teaches us that there is a plea to be made before God for salvation. The quicker you realize that you are a sinner and that God deals harshly with sin and you come to terms with a God who has planned everything for his glory and made all things happen to magnify his son and you kneel your heart and soul in repentance and make a plea to God to save you, to spare you, to forgive you of your sin, the quicker you do that, the day of salvation. The day of salvation. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. What is the day of salvation today? November 13th. It'll also be tomorrow when God calls somebody to repentance on November 14th. And on November 15th when God calls somebody to repentance. It'll be that day is the day of salvation. The day of salvation is the day that the Lord God Almighty causes your heart to cry out to Him for salvation. Because you know what? He's purposed that too. He has purposed that in your heart, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, your heart will become so unsettled with your sin and His wisdom and His power, you'll be so unsettled with that that you'll have no choice but to call out to Jesus for salvation. May it be today for you. And may it be a rest for our souls today that we worship in truth because we know that God in his power, in his wisdom, and in all of his authority is doing all things according to his will for his glory. How does this chapter of the story end? After this, the land had rest from war. We're only given rest once God is done dealing with us. When God is done dealing in creation, then we will have rest. Your soul won't have rest until God is done dealing with you. Is he dealing with you today? In his power, in his wisdom, and in his authority, is he dealing with you today? And in his power, and in his wisdom, and in his authority, does your soul have rest to worship him in truth and spirit today? As the worship team comes forward to lead us in a time of response, a time where we sing back to God what he has done for us and in his word, a time where we sing his truths and declare these together as a fellowship under God's sovereign rule. If he's calling you out to repent of your sins and trust him for salvation, the only one who can do that I pray that you will call out to him today. Have mercy on me, Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, may we have a restful soul as we worship him in truth and spirit. Stand with me. Father, we do love you and we trust you.
And may the truth of your word resonate richly with our hearts today, that we, we might worship you in truth and spirit, that we might have deep affection with all that you do, all that you have purposed, because we know it's for your glory and for our good. And God, I pray that if there are hearts in this room so inclined today, so overwhelmed today with the truth about their sin, with the truth about what happens to a life of sin and the death and destruction that is coming, with the truth about them trying to be controlling in their life and they have not yet surrendered to you, God, I pray that you would cause them this morning to call out to you, repent of their sins, and be saved. May we worship you in truth and spirit today. With joy, may we worship you. It's in Christ and we pray and all of God's people said.